Welcome to People in Profit. I'm Kate Moody. Coming up, a changing of the guard in the United Kingdom. As the country mourns the death of Queen Elizabeth, we'll be delving into the finances of the monarchy and what could change. A new head of government has also been installed. On top of her agenda is the UK's energy crisis. How is Liz Truss planning to shake up the source of British power? And will the cost of living crisis force restaurants and pubs to close? Our reporters have been meeting some of the British business leaders worried about their future. The death of Queen Elizabeth II on September the 8th has put the British royal family back in the global spotlight. Amid the mourning are questions about the monarchy's future and fortunes. With assets from castles and sporting grounds to jewels and art, the royal family is estimated to have some $30 billion in personal wealth. A separate sovereign grant, around $100 million per year, is used to cover official royal duties like travel. Well, let's speak now to Dr. Laura Clancy, lecturer at Lancaster University and author of Running the Family Firm, How the Monarchy Manages Its Image and Our Money. Thank you for joining us today. Concretely, one of the things that people always want to get to the bottom of is the question, does the monarchy cost more to British taxpayers than it brings in? I mean, I think there's kind of varying figures about what they cost and there's kind of competing areas of this. So I think the main thing that they cost is the sovereign grant. So that's their official funding, um, which comes from the Crown estate and then that goes to the government and the government pays them. What people like Republic have said is that actually that's not all of the money that they have. So, for instance, things like security are funded by a different government department. Um, and then, of course, you've got private funding. So that's things like what they actually own as individuals. Um, and you've got things like the Duchy of Cornwall as well, which pay for what it was Prince Charles, now it's Prince William. The, the late Queen, we know, has been described as the CEO of that family firm, the business of the monarchy. Um, what do we know about how involved she was in these financial decisions? Well, we don't really. And I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because if we think of it like a business, she is really, you know, she was the top dog, I suppose. So to kind of not know her role in that is quite interesting when it's an institution of state and it perhaps maybe should, should be more transparent. I mean, we do need to bear in mind that there are various, I mean, there are hundreds of people that work in the palaces, including finance people, including private secretaries and all of those. And these are people that have often come from industry. And um, so they've often worked for big corporations globally. And um, so, of course, they're kind of trained and have skills in all of these things as well. So, And they might be leading some of the more technical aspects of that to ensure that it runs like any other kind of corporation or business, really. And we know that the now King Charles did play a very active role in developing his own estate while he was the Prince of Wales. Uh, it's the Duchy of Cornwall and that brand, du uh, Duchy Organics. Yes. So I think, I mean, the, the Duchy of Cornwall has been passed down for its for heirs of the throne, the direct heir. And that's been since the 1300s. And that's been passed down. What Charles did has done differently is kind of make it more profitable in lots of ways. So hiring managers, for example, again, that are skilled in these things and creating various arms of property um, and things like um, Duchy Originals, which is a food brand that's sold through Waitrose. So you can see kind of making those connections and almost entrepreneurial decisions as well to kind of make that more profitable um, and more able to stand on its own, I suppose, in an age of kind of, you know, late capitalism where those kind of decisions are really important. The Queen and the Royal Family were cited in the Paradise Papers as having millions of pounds in offshore accounts. Uh, we know that the Crown doesn't pay much tax on its massive fortune. We're seeing now a global push to impose a minimum corporate tax rate on tech giants. Do you feel that the monarchy is given a free pass in that discussion? 
I think they're given a free pass on lots of these kind of conversations. So, in, I mean, in 1992, they agreed to pay voluntary income tax. Um, so that was after there was a lot of kind of public outcry, after there was a fire at Windsor Castle and public money was being used to, to fix it, essentially. Um, and in response to the criticism, they said, well, we're going to start paying voluntary income tax. But the amount that that is taxable from, so what they got, right, that is then taxed, we don't know about that. So essentially kind of this idea, it, it was put in as an idea of transparency. Um, but of course, that doesn't pan out if you don't know exactly how much percentage that is. So I think, you know, they're often ignored in that. And even in the Paradise Papers, you know, that was front page news, but everyone forgot about it really quickly that they were involved in that, just like Apple, just like Amazon. So this is kind of why in my book, I argue that actually it's perhaps more useful to think of them like a corporation, like Apple and like Amazon, who use these kind of loopholes in order to not to pay tax. The royal family has, of course, seen its fair share of controversy in recent years, uh, notably surrounding Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and more serious allegations that have targeted Prince Andrew. What does that do to the image, the brand of the crown? I mean, I think the Prince Andrew one has been particularly damaging. Um, I, I think one thing that they've done, that they've done quite well is almost like position him as like a black sheep. So it's like, oh, no, we're not like him. He's different from the rest of us. I think that's been done in the, in the news media quite broadly. Um, but I mean, the things around Harry and Meghan, you know, that Oprah interview was, was pretty damning um, in terms of what he said about particular members of royals. So I think I think all of those things kind of come together. I feel like that never really hit the Queen in quite the same way. I think she was maybe slightly separate from those conversations. Um, but I think that's perhaps why it'll be interesting now we have Charles as King, um, you know, a figure who is not as popular traditionally. Um, and then, of course, William, who was also a target of some of those accusations around um, Harry and Meghan and racism. So it'll be interesting to see now we have those two men at the top, you know, how that might, might pan out quite differently. I think time will tell on that one. And despite all this, there is an ongoing fascination with the royals, which really feeds this money-making machine. And the media does play a large role in that. What have you felt about the media coverage specifically of Queen Elizabeth's passing? Well, it's been just like blanket coverage here. So the BBC rolling all the time. Um, so you, you kind of can't escape it. Um, and there's also been quite a lot of attention on the BBC for kind of a lack of, not necessarily, I'm not suggesting, you know, outright criticism, but even kind of any sort of critical engagement hasn't really happened. Um, and even just, you know, we saw this in those really interesting documents that The Guardian published a few years ago about the plans for the, when, she, when she died and how every single second from when she died to the funeral was planned down to the, you know, down to the absolute detail. And you can see there this kind of a knowledge, right, that this is a really important moment of where they need to shape public narrative in a positive way because such disruption of a new monarch after 70 years, you know, such a massive change is, has, is a potential, I think, fracturing point where people might start being more critical. So by planning this coverage and by making sure it's largely positive, that kind of shuts down some of that, I think, and controls the narrative as much as you can, of course, in an age of digital media. Um, but it certainly shapes the narrative in a particular way. Laura Clancy, thank you so much for joining us on France 24 today. Well, shortly before the Queen's death, the new British Prime Minister addressed what was then the country's top priority, spiralling energy prices. Liz Truss said her government would cap energy bills, households for two years and businesses for just six months. And she doubled down on measures to boost domestic energy production. Charles Pelligrant joins us with more. Charles, where does the UK get its energy? Well, if we look at overall energy consumption, fossil fuels are, hu are a huge part of the UK's energy mix. Over 
40% comes from natural gas and nearly a third from oil. Only around 12% is from nuclear, wind, and solar sources, what's described as primary electricity, and a similar amount from bioenergy and waste. In terms of energy security, 28% of the UK's energy in 2020 was imported, down from 35% in 2019. But the UK isn't exporting as much as it did in the mid to late 90s. So what do we know about the new Prime Minister Liz Truss's longer-term energy strategy? Well, she wants to go back to those days when the UK exported energy. Um, the aim was to become a net exporter by 2040. And to reach that goal, well, she already announced a new round of licenses to drill for oil and gas in the North Sea, lifted a moratorium on fracking for shale gas, and recommitted to reaching 24 gigawatts of nuclear power by 2050. When it comes to renewable energy, she temporarily suspended so-called green levies on energy bills meant to finance renewable schemes. As a campaigner, she opposed onshore wind and solar farms. Now, the previous government under Boris Johnson had vowed to get the UK to net zero emissions by the year 2050. Is it on track? Well, if you look at the Environmental uh, Performance Index, uh, the UK is among a handful of countries who are on track. It gained a lot of ground in the last decade because it phased out coal-burning power plants in favor of gas and renewable energy. But further progress will require tougher action. The UK Climate Change Committee pointed out a lack of clear government strategy when it comes to two-thirds of all emissions. There's been success when it comes to developing renewable energy, especially wind and boosting the adoption of electric cars. But for many more types of emissions, the government's response is believed to be inadequate, for instance, when it comes to energy efficiency in homes or agriculture and land use. Charles Pettigrew, thank you so much for that update. While the government measures may not be in time to save some struggling businesses, with inflation stubbornly near 40-year highs and consumer spending waning, the hospitality industry in particular is worried. Luke Trago reports from London. How's everything? In southwest London, Adrian Mills's Taito restaurant sits on prime real estate on Wimbledon's High Street to provide for hungry locals. But for several months, the UK's cost of living crisis has bitten hard and set produce prices on the rise. Meat's gone up 20, 30 percent. Vegetables gone up sort of 15 percent. You know, after the pandemic, uh, rent has gone back up to what it was. The VAT was held at 5 percent, but that's gone back up to 20 percent. Then we have Deliveroo, who is fantastic service, and people go, you're doing really well, but we pay them 30 percent. Um, so there is not one cost in this restaurant that hasn't skyrocketed over the last six months. Wages now account for 42% of turnover too, 15% higher than two years ago. Many restaurant staff either left after Brexit or the pandemic and those left behind are in serious demand. Add to that painfully high power prices and the energy-hungry business is seeing its margins further squeezed. You have to have electricity, you have to light the restaurant, you have to light the kitchen, you have to have music, you have to have you know everything plugged in, the, uh, the, uh, the, dish, the dishwasher, the heated plates. The energy prices are going to be insane in the next few months. Adrian takes us to a neighboring pub where the landlady tells us the entire hospitality sector is feeling the pinch as customers seek to take the home go down. Yes. Good, thank you. Uh, so the, regular, like the regulars are coming all the time. They're not, instead of coming in every day, they're coming in every other day. And maybe they might have had two pints, now they're only having a pint. And making um, it last longer. And making it last longer. Yeah, prime example, it's Friday night, it was really busy, but no one was drinking. So all the tables were taken, but nobody was really spending money. The fear now is how long the crisis might last. 
with one trade association fearing as many British firms might have to close down as during COVID. That's all for now. Don't forget you can find this and our previous shows on the France 24 website or as a podcast wherever you usually listen. You can also get in touch with your comments and questions on social media. Until next time, thanks for watching. France 24, your economy explained. Liberté, égalité, actualité.